My name is Dennis Sheeran. And this is Raymond Steinmetz. And we are from the Instant Relevance Podcast. We are proud members of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you are listening to right now. Make sure you check out all of the other great podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. And get ready, because the learning begins in three, two, one. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. I'm your host, Greg Goins, and my special guest today is Ted Fujimoto, an expert in leadership development and organizational redesign. He serves as the president of the Landmark Consulting Group. Ted is the co-founder and co-chair of the Right to Succeed Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to transforming at least 6,000 public schools into American dream schools within the next 10 years using replicable, deeper learning, whole school designs. Ted's passion for redesigning schools began as a young entrepreneur back in 1996 when he emerged as the co-developer and co-creator of New Technology High School in Napa, California. This was to meet the needs of a thriving business community that demanded a stronger workforce. New Tech High School was one of the first to design instruction around project-based learning, modeling after the project management protocols used in the business world. If you have an interest in innovation and the change process to transform schools, then this episode is for you. So kick back and relax and enjoy my conversation with Ted Fujimoto. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. We have another exciting show for you today as I welcome in an expert in scaling innovation and change in organizations. This gentleman is also a leader in school design as we welcome in Ted Fujimoto. How are you, Ted? I'm great. Thanks for having me. You know, it's a thrill to talk with you. I followed you on Twitter for a long time, and You've been doing some amazing things at really a relatively young age. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and maybe go into, um, you know, how you became engaged in the change process for schools? Well, I launched, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, and I launched my first company my freshman year of college. And um, by the time I graduated, we had couple dozen employees and we're building finance and logistics systems for some very large companies and I had located my company to Silicon Valley um, and it is in the early 90s we decided to move it uh, back to Napa Valley where I'm from but uh, Napa although it's known by most people as wine country a farm so we were having a hard time even being the employees that we needed, even admin assistants that had the skill sets that we needed to the point that I thought that uh, might have to move the company again within the next year or two uh, to another location. Um, we went to the school board uh, in Napa uh, to say, what are you going to do to fix our problem? And they kind of threw it back in our lap. They had a little bit of overcrowding at the time, and uh, they uh, allowed us to 
uh, create a brand new high school um, that's, uh, that is now the new tech um, um, high school, new technology high school in Napa. And we, you know, we started as a, a uh, 11th and 12th grade year school because we wanted employees. And we put into the school um, the, a way of learning is a way that I would have wanted to learn because I couldn't stand school um, growing up. And we made it 100% project-based using protocols that came directly out of um, the teams in my company that uh, were winning awards in everything that they did. So long story short, um, those kids doing 100% project-based learning um, ended up uh, outperforming every single high school in that county by 10 to 50% on the state standardized tests uh, nine months later. So as you reflect on your own school experience, you just said that it wasn't a good one for you. Uh, I'm sure you were a good student. You had to, probably had to be to, to be successful in all that you've accomplished. But what was it about your school experience that you didn't like? And what was it that kind of that aha moment that you said, you know what, something's not working here? That's a, that's a very good question because I had a very mixed up uh, school experience from, uh, from private school to single room rural school to public school to uh, um, correspondence school living overseas. So I had a you know, really broad range of ex educational experience. But the one thing that didn't work for me was sitting and getting. And um, I, I learned by walking around, talking to people and doing. And it is so opposite of school, how school is done, no matter what format. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's so opposite of, of how, how I learned. So I made it through school. I got good grades in, in the classes that mattered, and I kind of skirted by and everything else. Um, and you, you learn very quickly how to manage your time to basically you know, crack the code and break the system to get through. And so that's, that's how I uh, sur survived. And I, you know, I had situation that's quite flexible because we were expats and living overseas and traveling. So uh, things were a lot more fluid and more flexible. So that allowed me to do that. But I know if I were, you know, living in a town and had, and had to go to school every single day, I would have just lost my mind. And so we touched a little bit earlier about uh, New Tech High, which opened, I believe, around 1996, and you played an uh, integral role in the development of that school and its success. And I was doing a little research, Ted, on that school system, or that school, per se, and I went to their website, and there's about a nine-minute video on the website called uh, How It All Began, and I found a young Ted Fujimoto uh, in the glasses and the three-piece suit and the big hair. And you were talking about Lotus Notes, how that was a, a really a game changer at that time. So I guess my question is twofold. How has technology helped that school evolve? And what do you really think the role of technology should be in the classroom? We basically, even though it's called New Technology High, that was more because, you know, that, that was the workforce and the industry that that was closest, that was growing in that region, which is Silicon Valley. But other than that, technology was simply used as, the, the standard that we basically used was whatever tools was in the workplace, those were the tools that 
students need to have around them. And so at that, at that time, um, Lotus Notes was one of the top uh, um, customer relationship and information uh, and workflow systems uh, that many, many of the Fortune 500 companies used. And that's what we used to manage our projects. So we simply gave them that tool and we uh, took our project management protocols um, and the uh, Lotus Notes templates that we use to manage the projects with. And we basically copied our server and dumped that into the school. So they literally got their project-based learning, which is you know, now kind of uh, morphed over the years. And, uh, and uh, some of that DNA also gets shared with Buck, uh, Buck Institute. Uh, uh, and that basic sense of uh, project-based learning came from the workplace. Uh, from uh, award-winning teams that uh, I had in my company and, and the way that they thought about how they broke down the project. And, you know, 1996 wasn't that long ago, but in terms of technology, uh, that was light years ago. I, I was a first-year teacher in 1995. I remember getting on the Internet for the first time. So you think about how technology has kind of transformed the way we teach and the way we learn. That, that was a very forward-thinking approach at the time. Yeah, for, for technology in schools, because uh, most of the schools um, were, I mean, they hadn't, you know, there's a few schools that had implement technology, but they were in a form of labs, right? And it was something you did on the side. You went, uh, you went to, you know, keyboarding class, you know. Um, but uh, in the workplace, even back then, um, having a workstation and uh, communicating and managing your projects was um, was normal and pervasive, so we just simply brought the school um, work, um, the school environment to what's equivalent of the of the work environment. And other than you know notes and the templates there, and, and you know having your basic stuff like uh, email and uh, and uh, Microsoft Office and things like that, uh, we didn't really prescribe you know much more than that um, as far as technology. Uh, because you know the whole idea here is that technology is a tool, and technology changes, and and the tools that you need are kind of depend on the projects that you're doing. So um, that that's how we let it evolve. And you know, anytime I talk with someone that is an expert in in the change process and innovation, uh, you know, I get kind of excited because if you ask different people what innovation means, you're going to get different answers. But I, I heard you say in a previous interview that to you it was about longevity. Does it have staying power? Is that kind of how you define innovation in schools? Yes, um, because it, it, it's, it's, I think it's a combination of things. So one is there's no point in inventing something if no one uses it and it doesn't change anything about even a small group of people and how they work or how they behave over a period of time. So uh, innovation um, has to be used and it, and it has to um, have, there has to be some kind of structural advantage to it that uh, enables it to become part of the fabric. And, you know, that, that's um, one of the things that in education reform, I think, uh, there, I mean, we've all seen programs come and go. I can't remember, three years or something coming in and, come, and something going, come, something becoming popular and then something uh, all of a sudden, all the studies refute that it even works, right? And, 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 and in those cycles, um, I think part of the problem is that they, 
there isn't any of that staying power. There isn't the systems, the ecosystems to allow things to sustain. So I don't care if you have a, the best idea in the world, but if you don't work on the system side of it to make it uh, the way of doing things, um, everything disappears. And the analogy um, I like to use is uh, if, if, if uh, you have a great idea, it's like a freshwater fish and you dump it in a saltwater tank. Just a matter of time before it dies. So uh, that's one of the things that's been, that has been missing in the um, school design and redesign space is uh, the focus on not just the practices in the classrooms, but the systems around it that need to support it. And I've also, I either heard you say this in another interview, or maybe I found this on your website, but basically you say there's two ways to transform schools. Either A, adopt a proven design, and you want to try to replicate that, or B, you want to invent something completely new and authentic. Can you talk about kind of the pros and cons of each, and what do you see more of? That's a, that's a very good question. We've seen that evolve over the years, uh, but let me say it this way. Um, to really do something innovative, you not only have to have a very clear set of ideas and a, and a place to experiment and a, a be allowed to experiment um, for that innovation. And when we first created Napa New, uh, New Technology High School, um, I don't think I've come across in 20, 20 uh, plus years a environment that had the ingredients that would have allowed us that much flexibility. And, um, and it, was, it was quite, um, you know, once in a lifetime um, and pretty astounding. Uh, with, with adopting a school design, very few organizations, very few school districts actually are set up to be innovation labs. They're good operators. They're set up to be operators. And this is not an intention. This is not about good or bad people in the system. It's just simply how it's structured and what they have to do on a daily basis. And the notion that every district can be um, innovative, um, I think is, is actually a fallacy. I think they can implement and implement with consistency innovative practices. But um, it's a whole, it's, it, the analogy I would use is we all use technology like the iPhone. And we can critique it, we can evaluate all day long. Very few of us could actually design one um, or engineer one. And very few, even fewer, could actually create a company that creates this, like an Apple, right? So there's a big distance between use, use of innovation versus creation of innovation. So I think most organizations, um, when they start to under, really understand this and they say, you know, we're actually set up to be good operators, then you start to um, adopt designs. Um, if you look at um, the hospitality industry and five-star, four-star resorts, um, most of those are franchises because the operators have determined that, yeah, we, we've, we've, we can talk about five-star hotels all day long and we've visited many, but to actually have an innovation or to actually have a model to follow, a, a franchise model to follow, um, they've chosen to do that because of the benefits of adoption versus trying to create everything from scratch. Um, but every now and then, they're, they're, uh, around the country, around the world, there are a set of conditions that um, enable true innovation um, to happen and, uh, and have uh, additional breakthroughs that uh, move, move that um, bar forward. 
And, you know, the good news, Ted, is you've done a lot of the legwork for us. I mean, there, you know, if you go to your website and the different foundations you're a part of, and I certainly wanted to get into some of that work. But as you think about these options here, there are already some great things happening in our schools. So if you want to replicate some various models, you talk about the whole school design model. And, of course, you're big on uh, deeper learning, project-based learning, competency-based instruction. Those things have to be, you know, I would maybe think the three pillars for creating better schools. Yes. And, you know, it, it, and that's, a, that's akin to uh, saying if you're creating an airplane, you need wings, you need the engine, you need, to, you know, you, there's some basic parts, right, that are required for that. Um, but to actually have it fly, there's a precise combination of those parts and how they're assembled and the proportions of, of that. And that becomes part of this uh, part of the system. And that's what these uh, whole school designs have done over the years is proved and tested out that uh, uh, that if you implement the design with fidelity, you will get superior results. And one of the things that uh, we've seen over the, um, uh, recently, <coughs> excuse me, over the last uh, few years is that whole systems are going wall to wall with these system uh, with these designs. So Napa County, all districts, all schools are um, uh, uh, are using a variation of the new technology model. Um, El Paso City Schools is going wall to wall with uh, the new tech model, and there's a number of districts that have gone um, wall to wall. and um, And you can see the transformation. And even still, that work is incredibly difficult. So, if I, I can only imagine that if that those same districts try to invent something from scratch and try to implement, uh, very few would actually uh, succeed, even with the best intentions. Uh, so, so it's a, it, it's a, um, it, it's a combination of uh, design elements, a precise combination that that produces those results, and it, it does take a very special place to be able to put those pieces together. And you're also heavily involved with the Right to Succeed Foundation. You're the founder and uh, I believe the co-chair. And uh, you're doing some great things there with the Dream Schools Initiative. Can you talk about, is it possible for a child to go to a dream school? Well, you know, the, the whole idea here is, you know, we've supported over the years um, a, a number of different uh, deeper learning school designs. And I believe that every kid, should have the opportunity to go to deeper learning school design uh, because that's it's most aligned to the biology of intrinsic motivation and engagement and and learning. Um, even if a kid is doing well in a classical education where it's mostly direct instruction um, and they're getting great grades, doesn't mean they're actually learning a, a, a whole lot. Um, not enough to um, truly be atop of their game in that field of knowledge. Um, in the innovation and the progress that is being made in all different kinds of sectors. So um, I believe every kid needs to have access um, to schools like that. So what we've been doing at Right to Succeed is highlighting and telling the stories in, a, in as approachable way as possible to the public and to policymakers about the existence of these whole school designs. And the idea that is that, you know, if a community wants to uh, com uh, transform and redesign their existing school or school, all their schools, uh, this doesn't have to be a 10-year process. This can, um, they can literally have one starting, in, you know, within the next year or two. Um, and 
that's you know with um, by commit commitment to what school design do you want to implement and commitment to implementing with fidelity. And what we have found um, in the right to succeed work is the fastest way to make that transformation happen is actually to get a group of about 25, um, a delegation of 25 from the community, an equal mix of um, business, civic, educators, and parents to go see some of these top replicable whole school designs around the country. And quite frankly, I don't care if they adopt an existing one, you know, it, um, or they decide to do something on their own, but when they, they have to at least see the best that's happening out there that's scalable um, before um, they decide what they want to do. Because uh, if they haven't done that, then there's a huge chance that they're going to set the bar too low. So, you know, in a, in a real way, it's really that old committee of 10 philosophy that you just need to get people in your community that are engaged and want to create better schools for kids and just sit down and have some of those hard conversations about, uh, well, you know, just like you did in Napa, let's go to the business community and say, what are we missing here in our school? Yes, uh, um, that, that is right. And I, and I would add um, probably a, the component in it that makes it effective is I call a calibration experience. And Calibration experience, if I put you on first-class flight to Dubai on Emirates Airlines and you got that first-class experience, and then on the way back, I put you back on one of the American carriers in first-class, you wouldn't be too happy <laughs> because um, when, when they say first-class, it's a whole different level, right? And then if I put you on coach, then you'd just be mad at me, <laughs> right? Because the experience, it doesn't matter if whether you choose to later on spend your own money doing that or not, but the experience and that calibration, every time you fly, you would compare that, that experience to your Emirates first class experience. And it so profoundly shifts your mindset on what is the bar. And I think the thing that's missing in a lot of blue ribbon committees and commissions around education transformation effort is most of them have never seen a high-performing uh, school that is uh, truly preparing kids for 21st century, um, which is uh, deep learning, project-based learning-oriented schools. And, you know, I, I hate to put the, uh, put the bullseye on those policymakers we talked about, but I have these conversations week after week after week. And, again, there are some great things happening throughout uh, the country in our schools as we try to reimagine or reinvent what we're doing. But there are so many roadblocks along the way as states, you know, create unfunded mandates and you have to do this, you have to do that. And I think about the damage something like No Child Left Behind has done on the American school system. At what point or what do we have to do to get those policymakers engaged in the conversation and just get out of the way? Well, you know, we've made some progress. I think, uh, I think things have uh, actually improved significantly over the last 25 years. So uh, probably the biggest change um, is um, with the passage of ESSA two years ago is that for the first time, uh, federal government in the language has uh, deeper learning concepts in it saying this is a good thing. So uh, the feds are out of, kind of uh, out of the way in blocking those consideration of those types of practices. And then they went one step further, which is basically in the, in the law is uh, uh, prohibiting the uh, U.S. Secretary of Education or uh, employees of the Department of Education 
to uh, prescribe directly or indirect or curriculum or standards. So um, it really does plant the onus back on the states on, um, on, and does give them a degree of flexibility that we haven't seen um, in 20 plus years. And it uh, gives huge opportunities to implement things like deeper learning, competency-based learning, inquiry-based learning um, uh, into, into, into the schools. So um, I, I think the big disconnect, if I see in, 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 uh, in policy, and this is not just at the state level, but even a local district level, is that when you're not clear about your school design and, all, and how it needs to function um, and the conditions that you need it, to function in, uh, to uh, be implemented with fidelity, weird things can happen. And I'll give you the most common one that I, I find. Um, there's, a, you know, project-based learning is pretty popular. It's kind of been growing in popularity among schools. And, but most of the schools I walk into that say they're doing it aren't really doing it. Um, they're doing projects, but they're not doing the project-based learning process, which is the most important. And on, to compound that problem is that they exist in districts which are, have been unable to get rid of their pacing guide, their curriculum pacing guide. Now, if you think about personalized learning and use of projects in a nonlinear fashion and groups of kids are working on different types of projects at the same time, there is no pacing guide that can accommodate that. And so when you see a pacing guide and projects built around a pacing guide, you see very, very weird contortions of um, student work that doesn't lend itself to any of the um, benefits of, of, of project-based learning. So simple things like that um, get in the way of implementation. So that's where I, I recommend to districts and to states is once you've committed to some school designs, um, whether you've adopted one or you've created your own, be incredibly clear about the policy conditions that are needed and start advocating for um, blanket waivers um, from that. Um, and that is a tool that um, many organizations and, and, and uh, regions that have implemented uh, some of the deep learning schools like New Tech Network and Big Picture Learning have uh, used to basically clear the path for um, high fidelity implementation. You know, as, as you know very well, uh, another big challenge we face, particularly at the high school level, is there's still this um, desire to create this college prep curriculum because the ACT, SAT is still the be all end all to whether or not you're gonna get into a good school. Uh, but I'm starting to see more of a hybrid approach with college prep and also more of the project-based learning and the life skills. So whenever you meet with school districts and talk about transformational change, I'm sure you're having those conversations. What is that like? <laughs> so it's very, it's very interesting because when you look at um, most mission statements and blue ribbon, you know, uh, here's the initiatives, here's what we want to do and, and the goals that they set for themselves. I have no problem with most of those goals. Um, I have no problem with um, goals of being college ready, right? But there's a big difference between a goal and intention versus execution. And what I see more of is, okay, uh, if we want to have kids do better in college, 
well, we need to increase the rigor of the curriculum and we're going to throw more kids into AP courses. Well, if I went to more AP courses, I would have probably dropped out <laughs> because it's just more, more lectures, more, you know, sit and get, it just got worse. It would get, the experience would have gotten worse. And, and we know, you know, after the fact, with the you know, existence of Big Picture New Tech Network for over 20 years now, that kids who go through this learning process have double digits higher, not only graduation rates, but college retention rates than anybody, than their peers and anybody else. So, um, so at the end of the day is, what is the strategy? What is the pedagogy that's so aligned with the biology of learning that tr truly helps kids retain their knowledge better and to be able to apply it because those are those that knowledge will tr automatically transfer into much better preparation uh, and survival in college even if you know colleges you know have a lot of direct instruction and but when you have a kid who's already getting by the time they you know just even if they've touched the new tech um, schools for let's say their high school experience four years they've already given Two, three hundred public presentations defend, defending their project. They've uh, uh, been on seventy-five different projects. They've been um, um, project lead for probably twenty-five of those. They know how to advocate for themselves. They know how to go research. They they know how to ask for help um, versus uh, a, a lot of kids who graduate and then when they get to college, there's you know they they're they don't have the self discipline. They don't have the wherewithal, they're afraid to go and advocate for themselves because they don't know how to work the system. So I, I think that, um, that uh, those life skills become um, so important in college in self-management and self-efficacy. Well, I, I could sit here and talk with you all day, Ted. You're a fascinating guy and you've done some amazing things. And uh, before we go, I do want to ask you one more question because we do have a lot of superintendents and principals that listen to the podcast. And if, if they're working in a school district and, and they've been working with their board of education, their community, they've decided they want to take a big bite out of this and really do something uh, to transform schools. What advice would you have for those folks and what resources would you point them to? Well, my first advice is to ensure they have the right people as far as the delegation to be able to drive this change. And, and most do a, a reasonable job at it, but it needs to be a good mix between educators, business, civic leaders, and in and, uh, and, and the broader community. Um, but the, the thing that I see missing most often is the, uh, the collective visits of that group of people to the best examples around the country because you can't aim at what you think is best without seeing it. So if they do that, then a lot of other things start to fall into place. Um, seeing is believing and it also, even if you, the district and, and the community ends up doing something um, on its own, then at least it's set the minimum bar that it must uh, uh, pass to call itself in, uh, innovative. So that's the first thing. And the second thing I would um, highly recommend is whatever they uh, commit to implementing, they need to do an inventory of every single board and district policy and, uh, and uh, categorize it, whether the policy is neutral, helpful, or hurtful for the high fidelity implementation of that design. And for everything that is hurtful, create a waiver. 
create a series of waivers so that it's automatically exempt um, so, so that the, um, the practitioners don't have to keep asking to be the exception to rule to do what they've been asked to do. Well, once again, uh, it's been a great conversation. Uh, you just a uh, wealth of information. You can follow uh, Ted on Twitter at Ted Fujimoto. You can also find all of his links, the Right to Succeed Foundation, the Dream Schools Initiative. You want to check that out for sure. And how can people contact you, Ted, uh, with your consulting firm? Um, yes, uh, you can uh, reach me at my website. It's uh, consultlandmark.com. Well, thank you, sir, for your time, and thanks again to all of our loyal listeners out there who are always tuning in and listening to the Reimagined Schools podcast. And as always, folks, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids. Hello, everyone. This is Greg Goins again, the founder and host of the Reimagined Schools podcast. And I just want to take a quick moment to thank all of our listeners for your support of this podcast. With this episode also comes the launch of the new Reimagined Schools website, a one-stop shop for all things related to this podcast. Best of all, you can now subscribe and listen to the show straight from the site, so be sure to check us out at reimaginedschools.net. I'm also very excited to launch Anchor's new listening support option to help keep this podcast on the air. Help us keep the conversation going by supporting the Reimagined Schools podcast with a small monthly donation to help sustain future episodes. Just click on the link in the show notes or visit the website to make a contribution. As always, thank you so much for listening and thanks for your support for the Reimagined Schools podcast.